You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. He stomps his feet, sends me to bed with zilch to eat. But my stepdad's not mean, he's just adjusting. Today's episode is black comedies. No, I'm not talking about Tyler Perry movies. I'm talking about dark humor. We got a couple good ones this show. John, start us off. Tell me, what do you think about black comedies? Did you grow up with them? Do you like them? I feel like black comedies weren't really introduced into my life till I was a teenager. And it was just what the doctor ordered, honestly, for a teenager living in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I love them. I honestly, I prefer black comedies, I think, over regular comedy. Besides the ones we're talking about, can you think of any others that are particularly notable for you? Yes, if you'd asked me this ten minutes ago when I was thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll start the ball rolling and say that I enjoy that film Idle Hands. I have seen that. I do enjoy that movie. Oh, Casper, right? The kid played Casper? Yeah, Devin Sawa. Jessica Alba in a great performance. It's a classic example of all this bleak stuff is happening in the background, but it's also very funny. And then that made me think, well, do all dark comedies have to incorporate an element of death to be a dark comedy? And then I thought of Jojo Rabbit. Have you seen that? Yes. That one is an example of it's not inherently about death, But the comedy is mixed in with the main character as part of the Hitler youth during World War II. So, you know, that's where the darkness comes in. About as dark as you can get, really, I think, without it being all about death. Black comedies, they definitely are more special, and I think they stick with you more than a normal comedy. Because whenever you mix comedy with something else, it's kind of like with food, if you're having a dessert... They say to add salt in there because that saltiness will bring out the sweetness more. Just like with comedy. If you cut comedy with some darker moments, it really makes the comedy shine. I agree. Because everyone's got that darker nature in them somewhere. I think it makes you feel better. And the contrast, you're right, it makes it shine. We're talking today about... Death to Smoochie from 2002, and Beetlejuice from 1988. Let's start with Death to Smoochie. A Danny DeVito film, I forgot he directed that, about the seedy underbelly of children's daytime television. (laughs) And poor Edward Norton gets caught up in every black negative plot (laughs) to to (laughs) corrupt the system and monetize everything. This movie has a very seedy quality to it that never really stops. It runs all the way through. Just off the top of your head, give me some seedy examples in this movie. Let's start with the children of the Parade of Hope Foundation that is just trying to take every penny they can from everyone. They're supposed to be building hospitals, instead just out for themselves. Rainbow Randolph uh, is taking bribes to get other people's kids into shows. You've got the Irish proprietors of that restaurant. The, uh, yeah, the Irish mob <laughs> that <laughs> kill a lot of people <laughs> violently. And then as the movie progresses and Edward Norton's character, Sheldon, 
who is the titular Smoochie, the rhinoceros character, he is one of the only that maintain a moral compass. That gets him into trouble with all the seediness going on. Even in the last act of the movie, when you think you've seen all the seediness this movie's going to give you, then they get somebody that's going to assassinate Smoochie, who himself is a former children's entertainer, now a smack addict. Keeps falling asleep during the assassination attempt. <laughs> I mean, that's that right there is pitch perfect with the dark humor. He's trying to assassinate Smoochie <laughs> on ice, <laughs> skating around doing a, a show, but he keeps <laughs> falling asleep. I mean, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> and then um, when he falls off the scaffolding, do you recall what he says? I never saw Venice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many great one-liners in this thing. It's an easily quotable movie. I think I've heard the Robin Williams line about having a classy photo of a naked lady. It was like, real classy, no bush. I think I've said that a million times. And it's not just Williams. It's all throughout the script where people are just saying funny things, not even as meaty lines. They're just little asides. Did you see it when it first came out? No, I missed this. A friend turned me on to this one. I saw this when it first came out. I was 14 years old. I saw it with my dad. And this is another perfect example of the family sense of humor. Because my dad saw the trailers for this. And he's like, you know what? I want to go see that. Let's go see it. One of the best moments early on. This is only the second time I've seen this movie. But I have fond memories of it. So just imagine, I'm 14 in the theater with my dad, and there's a scene early on after Rainbow Randy gets booted for, uh... I was never really clear what exactly he did that was illegal. Do you know? No, I don't understand the legal system that well. <laughs> I understand game shows have a lot of rules around them. But this is children's show, so I don't know what kind of special laws they'd have. All we see when Rainbow Randy gets nicked by the cops, it's for being paid off to promote some kid on his show. Yeah, the, the quote-unquote parents wanted to have their child front and center during the taping or whatever they were doing. Yeah, and it was just cold hard cash. Maybe they should have included some drugs in there too. I don't know. Something a little more illegal than, like... I feel like a lawyer could have got him off. He never officially agreed. He never said yes. He said, I'll do what I want with my show. It didn't seem like he had legal repercussions, because then he's just out on his ass, and the world hates him. So this is early on, after he's been ousted. They find Sheldon, Ed Norton's character, to replace him. And... Rainbow Randy is going nuts, trying to figure out ways to destroy Smoochie. And one of the things he does, and this is the thing that was burned into my mind from watching it when I was a teenager with my dad, is that wonderful moment where Smoochie is taking out the cookies in front of all the kids in the audience. Rainbow Randy made these cookies, and they're in the shape of penises <laughs> everybody's shocked i remember laughing hysterically with my dad the best part of that to me is not that they're shaped like penises it's after smoochie 
recovers and calls them rocket ships, that Rainbow Randy has to jump out of his hidey hole and say, what are you talking about? <laughs> Those aren't rocket ships. They're cocks. That's a great big There's a shaft. There's the balls. That's a cock. <laughs> and then, yeah, he goes on that rant about like every euphemism for a penis he can think of in the time. I'm sure what he's saying is funny, but I also feel like his exasperation that it's not working <laughs> and that Smoochie's calling it a rocket ship. To me, that's what's really funny. He's just so annoyed that, no, stop calling it a rocket ship. It's not a rocket ship. It's obviously a penis. <laughs> just for the heck of it, I was watching it with subtitles on because, you know, Robin Williams, he says things pretty fast. Yeah. So I didn't want to miss a beat. There's a line from it that I don't remember from the first time, but rewatching it, as they're leading him, escorting him out of the stage, he says, it's made from dildo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would love to see how many of these lines are actually in the script and how much of it Robin Williams made up. I'll bet there's a take reel out there somewhere of him just going off it for an hour, just making penis puns. Now, what about this, would you say, really plays up the darker aspect of the dark comedy? First of all, it's shot like a noir film. I think when I first watched it, I was like, are you sure this is a comedy? It feels like a horror movie. Ed Norton's character is the only one who's not a shady bastard in some way. He's the only innocent one. It's a fish out of water story, if you will. So I feel like him not understanding the Russian mob was going to murder a bunch of people, or he doesn't get that uh, the Parade of Hope Foundation is on the take and everyone else wants to be on the take. Poor John Stewart's haircut. <laughs> <laughs> it feels so 90s, but this was 2002. Yeah, it bleeds over. Every decade bleeds over into the next one a little. With how funny the movie can get, it really hit me this time around, probably because I'm older and just tend to think a little bit more than I did. Rainbow Randy, from this viewing, I realized he is so pathetic. I really felt bad for him, even though he is such a jerk for most of the movie. Because you realize they uh, imply, or downright say in a couple instances, that he's grappling with his sexuality. <laughs> mm -hmm. We also find out that He's got mental issues, and he does actually take medication for it. So he's just a guy who's losing his mind, brought on by he was caught with his hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> the and he gets his ass kicked left and right. I mean, Yeah, they come down on him so bad. <laughs> Almost like they're making fun of mental health, but they're not. Like the boxer. They want to say he's uh, mentally impaired some way, but it's from getting hit in the head, and uh, Rainbow Randolph needed help. And I think Ed Norton said that at one point, and <laughs> Robert Williams got mad at him for it. Story is constantly happening. I don't really think there are any slow beats. Can you think of anything where it felt like it was dragging in parts? No. Right from the get-go, how fast things get moving with getting Robin Williams out, finding Ed Norton, getting him in, setting up the shadiness of everything, using Jon Stewart. It just moves. It's a fast-paced movie. There is such an array of well-thought-out characters. Who were some of your favorites in this? I love the Irish mob as a whole. 
Tommy, she was the head mobster, I believe, if I'm saying that correctly. She killed it, I thought. Yeah, the Irish mob. On the face of it, they're a caricature, but the matriarch does have a special needs brother. She puts up with so much of his crap, and he's always disruptive at the bar and in the restaurant. But she loves him, and you can tell that she cares about her family and that the other Irish mobsters care about the boxer as well, so they put up with it. And I feel like if that guy wasn't there, then they would be a complete caricature instead of like a 70%. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he really, uh, the boxer really balances his out. I was reading some reviews on this movie because, believe it or not, this movie bombed when it came out which is so sad because this isn't one that they were phoning in. They really put in their effort in the writing and the directing, acting, everything. But one of the people that gave a bad review was Roger Ebert, who I don't care what he has to say except to laugh at it. And one of the things he points out, he called the Irish mobster matriarch, Tommy, calls her a lesbian mobster. Did you get a lesbian vibe from her? Not in the least bit. I think that just goes to show that Roger Ebert, rest his soul, had some problems that he should work out. I've seen other reviews of his where he says things that feel pretty one-sided. I don't think the movie makers were trying to do that. (laughs) He's adding a sexuality that's not there. He's sexualizing, I guess, the situation. The only thing I can think of is one shot where the boxer is sad because he found out Smoochie was a Nazi. And for some reason, it's framed with Tommy's cleavage in the background. Oh, yeah, when she's consoling him? Yeah, she's consoling him, and (laughs) the shot is just him and her cleavage, and that's it. They do frame it so that if you were to put a piece of paper up to the screen, one half is his face, and the other half of the screen is her cleavage. Totally on the nose. (laughs) And uncomfortable because that's his sister. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You mentioned the Nazi scene. Set that up a little bit. So Robin Williams' character, Rambo Randolph, he sets up Ed Norton. He sets up Smoochie and tricks him into going to a Nazi rally. (laughs) And he doesn't realize it's a Nazi rally until the lights come up. And it's even funnier because it's Ed Norton, you know, from American History X. (laughs) I think about that scene a lot in life because every time I see something with Jimmy Fallon, I think if that happened to Jimmy Fallon, I'd be like, oh, obviously he doesn't agree with that stuff. But I think he would be too afraid not to perform the full show. (laughs) Well, and it just gave me more questions because the logic in this movie is uh, thin as a filament sometimes. Yes. So the Nazis agreed to Smoochie make an appearance. (laughs) They love Smoochie. (laughs) Hail Smoochie. Have you been on stage much? Not in a while. Because as outrageous as it seems that Sheldon wouldn't be able to see the audience that he's playing to because of the lights, I've definitely been on stage, not recently, but enough that That really hit home, that detail where the lights are just too bright and you really can't see the audience very well. So I love that he just, he plays a few bars before he he asks for the lights to turn off. He realized no one was singing along and he didn't know where he was. In the aftermath of that scene, 
I wrote down a few lines that I just love from this movie. When they're grilling Sheldon, and he's saying, no, it's a mistake. I did not know that they were Nazis. Somebody just randomly brought me to this event, and I played it. And the cops are interrogating him. Sheldon says, I don't hate anybody. (laughs) And, And I think it's the black cop that says, does that mean you don't hate Nazis? <laughs> <laughs> that it's such a police turnabout. I'm just like, aha, that means this thing. And then when uh, Rainbow Randy is giving his two cents about the scandal, he says, I was getting a homosexual Nazi vibe from him. And he does a limp-wristed salute. Yes, I noticed <laughs> that. That was definitely, I think, from one of his stand-ups. I want to say live on Broadway. <laughs> If you want to be offended, I guess you could be offended at something like that. But just just look at the joke and how utterly ridiculous it is. You know, if the character was really calling him a homosexual and at the same time calling him a Nazi, I mean, obviously those things don't make sense together and is utterly ridiculous. So I hope people that watch this don't get offended at stuff like that because... It's not coming from anywhere of seriousness. (laughs) (laughs) Nor should it be coming from anywhere of seriousness. And you're right. The Nazi and the homosexuals don't mix. (laughs) Other things in this. At one point, a character gives Sheldon a gun for protection. And Sheldon says, When my brothers and I played cowboys and Indians, I was always the Chinese railroad worker. To show how much of a pacifist he is. And I love those sort of character beats. So many good little one-liners that, like, every one-liner serves this movie in some way. Even if it's just funny or when Robin Williams said that uh, Ed Norton was checking him out in the car, giving himself away that he set him up. Another aspect of this thing to point out, sure, they're playing up some stereotypes, but I never felt like they went too far with it. Mind you, I would say I have a greater uh, tolerance than some other people. It felt a little bit like a Farrelly Brothers movie, where it would mix some sweet with disgusting. There's definitely sweet and disgusting going on. A smack addict assassin combined with the beautiful tribute to the boxer (laughs) during the, the, the final act. Yeah, stuff like that is peppered throughout the whole movie. Because of the themes and the subject matter, especially with children's entertainment and marketing and the pursuit of fame, there's a lot of that where it's just characters wanting to be part of the spectacle. Did it make you think of any of your childhood favorite programming? No, I absolutely tried not to think about my childhood (laughs) programming. I'm sure it's true. I'm sure that it happened all the time. Pee Wee Herman got caught. Doing some stuff in a theater once. Yeah, just imagine there's so many people now that don't even know that that happened. And Paul Rubens is so happy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He should be. He should be. From what I understand, that's what the theater was for anyway, so I don't see the problem. Yeah, it's like, as far as I know, he wasn't in the Pee-wee costume when it happened. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been weird. (laughs) What do you think are some of the more gutsy aspects of this movie and do you think that they work well yes uh (laughs) (laughs) dealing with the boxer with the mental health issues i think was gutsy but i thought it worked well because they framed it under it's just brain damage from his boxing career 
but they definitely had a different type of background in mind for that character. They flip-flop on the whole drug use. They made a joke out of uh, the assassin being a smack addict, but at the same time, almost everything that Smoochie did was to help uh, smack addicts. That was the Chekhov's gun of the movie, really. It was the open with a methadone clinic. This being a black comedy, do you think the ending... And we've talked about some plot details, but we haven't said the ultimate ending of this. Do you think the ending fits with the movie? Do you think it should be bleak or bleaker? I'm happy with the happy ending, just because it came at a dark cost. Robin Williams got a happy ending, which is really nice. The very, very end during the credits... Do you think that really happened, or do you think that was a dream that Rainbow Randy had? (laughs) I have to assume that that's a dream that Rainbow Randy had. (laughs) (laughs) It was so opulent, and throughout the movie, their use of light and neon, and it's just so colorful. But considering how much of the movie feels so cynical, if they just ended on a really cynical note, I think it would have left a bad taste in my mouth. So just to change things up a bit, I'm glad it peaked and ended on a high note. That's a good point. You make a good point, sir. Thank you. After doing uh, like 20 of these shows, I'm starting to come with some good notes. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's pretty safe to say not too many people know about this movie, but more people should. It's a great little gem. It's a great performance all around from everybody. Uh, Yeah, Danny DeVito knows how to get a good performance out of his actors. I forget what a good filmmaker he is, and I dare say, to segue, I think he's a better filmmaker than Tim Burton sometimes. I would agree with that, but if we're just going to compare the two movies today, I would say Beetlejuice is still a better made movie. It's a tough choice. These are both, I think... Of all the ones we've done together, I think this is the best average score of the two movies. Even though they're part of the subgenre of dark comedies, they approach it at two completely different angles, but I feel like they both do a great job of getting there. Mm -hmm. So we go from Death to Smoochie to Beetlejuice from 1988. A movie I found out premiered on March 30th, 1988, just a couple days before I was born. Oh, it's your birthday movie. I have Return of the Jedi. Mine's better. Yeah. Nah, maybe not. That was a... <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad movie. People seem to hate Ewoks for some reason, so maybe I'll retract. And... <laughs> Beetlejuice. In the film, it takes place in Connecticut. But when I watched it as a kid, I thought it took place in Vermont because I felt like that was the vibe I was getting, and since I grew up in an area near Vermont, I felt it was Vermont. And then I looked up where they did the production, and those shots were, guess where, in Vermont, so... Oh, wow. There we go. See, I got an upstate New York vibe, because that was where I was from. But, you know, in the end, it's the Northeast, right? It's the Northeast Coast, it all (laughs) kind of looks the same for a while. It's like 60 miles from my family farm in Vermont. Yeah. But Beetlejuice. Ooh, that's twice. Give us a little summary of this as well, if you will. 
Beetlejuice is a very friendly family comedy that immediately starts with the death of two people. And they have to navigate their way through the bureaucracy of being uh, ghosts in their own home. What I like about this, a little bit more than Death to Smoochie, Smoochie is really heightened to the point where the whole movie feels like one long good joke. But Beetlejuice, especially being, I guess, an early Tim Burton movie helps, it starts off very real. The first 10 minutes of the movie is the ordinary world part of the script where we just see the characters, the couple, Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin, living their life on a little uh, staycation. And then, of course, they die. But I like that they have that moment of reality before things turn weird. Do you remember roughly when you saw this for the first time? No. This is, it was like Star Wars to me. I remember being a little kid and just drawing sandworms everywhere I could for a while. And your parents just thought you were really into Dune? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, See, he's a big fan of the spice. Dad would sit me down at dinner. He who controls the spice controls the universe. I was like, Dad, I just want salt. This is dry. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think makes this movie particularly dark and fits it with the dark humor? It helps that it starts with Tim Burton, because that's kind of his vibe. But it is about death. People die. Even the five stages of death are for the already dead, apparently. Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin have to come to terms with themselves being dead. And then the afterlife... It's an office bureaucracy, and that just makes it worse than probably, like, a torture hell. And also the, the titular Beetlejuice. Oh, that's three times. <laughs> hey, I would love to say that three times and have Michael Keaton appear suddenly beside me. <laughs> Super confused. <laughs> well, what's going on? I should be shooting the flash right now. If he's walking down the street and some a-hole starts shouting Beetlejuice at him three times then that would totally make sense for Keaton to just turn around and leave, right? Because it's like, well, you said it three times. Since I'm already here, I have to leave now. <laughs> yeah, I gotta leave. <laughs> I gotta go back home and not deal with you. You should have thought that a little bit more before you did it, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, yeah, he's right. <laughs> no, I'm the asshole. Puts away his pad and pen for the autograph. <laughs> <laughs> just sad. <laughs> that character... He doesn't even appear until almost 50 minutes into this less than 100-minute movie. Yeah, it's everyone's favorite character. He's the titular character, and I think he has less than 10 minutes of screen time. He is used so well. He embodies dark humor. You get the sense that he would have no problem killing people, except the Maitlands don't want him to kill the new people that are living in their house. Mm-hmm. You can tell he's dangerous, but he also has a sense of humor about it. He's kind of like the Joker, I guess. <laughs> Looking at some of the themes in this movie, our main characters die. This rich family from New York buy their property and move in. And a lot of the movie is the Maitlands hating their afterlife because they can't leave the house and these rich people have moved in. There's just so many jokes about the urban versus farm people, almost. Since neither of us are originally city folk, how did that hit you as you watched it? As a kid, I totally got the vibe, I think, that uh, Tim Burton was going for, for the whole, you're not supposed to like these people. 
same time that ostensibly the city folk are the bad guys, it was interesting this watch just how stupid Alec Baldwin's character is. He is aloof to all this. Like, he's the one who's supposed to be reading the manual. So many of the characters in the movie understand the manual on death, and he doesn't seem to understand it. He has a few dyslexic moments, and I just realized he really isn't the smartest guy in the room in this movie. Mm -mm. No, he's not. Gina Davis, she doesn't even try to read the book, right? And she still seems to figure things out more. This movie is just over 90 minutes. I wish they had a couple more scenes where it was them trying to learn about being dead from the death manual. And sure, they're still not really smart at it. They mess things up, but at least try to show us that they're dealing with their new state of being with a bit more uh, seriousness, you know? That's a good point. Yeah, because they crash and then they're back at the house and it's been months. You're right. What do you think of the actual portrayal of the dead world when they're in the office waiting to talk to their caseworker? What do you think of the aesthetic and just the commentary on it all? It definitely feels uncomfortable. Everything, what, dimly lit and green is basically the aesthetic, and it's full Tim Burton set dressings on display. I would hate that. I would be like, this feels like death. Just this idea that you're waiting in a lobby with this gigantic number that goes into the billions, trillions, and you just have to wait there for your number to get called, <laughs> and how awful that must be. And that little ticket machine only had the two digits on it anyway, so how would... <laughs> I know. <laughs> the suspension of disbelief, you know. Yeah. What are some of your favorite moments from this movie? I definitely had a nostalgia moment. When I was a teenager, the local radio station had a uh, movie quotes call-in segment. And my brother called in. They're like, you live on air, what's up? And he's like, nice fucking model. And he hung up on <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so this was a radio show where you would call in to give them a quote? Yeah, basically, at the end of the show... They ignored my brother entirely, and they're like, all right, we're going to go with the best quote is Bond, James Bond. Because <laughs> it was the local radio station, and they didn't know what else to do. Music was terrible. I tried looking into this, but I didn't find anything conclusive in my five-minute Google search. <laughs> <laughs> Science. So one of the things in this movie is that Alec Baldwin's character has this nice scaled model of the town that they live in. There were a few shots in the movie that weren't obvious special effects shots that I felt like they were trying to play with the motif of miniatures. And there's some shots that just look like they're shooting miniatures for no reason. Did you get that vibe at all from any of the more mundane shots in the movie? I kind of did, because the opening shot is them panning over the miniature, trying to convince you that it's the town, until the giant spider crawls up on the church. Which is probably an homage to old horror cinema. Talking about Beetlejuice, if this was a Sam Raimi movie and a spinoff of Evil Dead, if they wanted to go really scary with Beetlejuice, they could. As a kid, the snake scene really creeped me out. 
and the model of Beetlejuice's face as the snake was just so gross. <laughs> <laughs> and when he's grabbing um, Charles Dietz by the foot, and he looks at him, he says, we've come for your daughter, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> for Beetlejuice, it's just a character moment, but for Chuck, it's like legitimate horror. It worked really well both ways. He's kind of the analog to Robin Williams in Death to Smoochie, as far as they're really there to punch up the comedy. But in general, I just like Michael Keaton more for his comedy because it feels so understated and varied. Whereas Williams, he's a master at it, but he's got a very specific lane that he does. Whereas Keaton in this, the very first real scene we have with him and he meets the Maitlands, just what a perfect scene how he's trying to woo them, but he's also disgusting, so he can't stop being that guy. He's, like, slapping bugs on himself and eating them. I want to know more about Beetlejuice, <laughs> but the fact that I don't know that much about him also makes him mystifying and interesting, you know? The intrigue brings out the best in him. Yeah, when he says he lived through the Black Plague, did he really live through that, or is he just bullshitting? I don't know. Like you, I did a quick Google search, and one of the questions that came up is, is he really a ghost or is he a demon? And I feel like Tim Burton said, like, he's a demon. Who knows? I could see him as just being full of crap. In the pseudo-wedding scene toward the end, when he puts the attire on himself and Lydia, the fact that his outfit looks like a terrible groomsman from the 70s... <laughs> yeah. Made me think that's how he relates. Maybe that's Circa when he died. He calls himself a bio-exorcist, but he's a con man. I don't think you can trust anything he says. What aspects of this do you think are particularly gutsy, and do you think they work well? I don't know if a lot of the movie could be considered gutsy, honestly. I think the whole movie works well, but I'm not thinking of anything that's truly gutsy. Maybe this supposed over 600-year-old man trying to marry a teenager. That seems a bit odd. It's a green card wedding, though. It is a green card wedding. That is a definite satire on immigration law. So maybe, yeah, that's gutsy, and I think it works well, because, yeah, he's the creep. And you're like, yeah, this creep's trying to marry this teenager. It fits so well with the rest of the movie. You got the Maitlands dealing with the bureaucracy of being dead. And then you got even Beetlejuice, who's a powerful character, but is also hemmed in by certain rules that don't quite make sense, but they're there and he has to play by them. A non-traditional, gutsy aspect of this movie, I feel, is the art style. It's very artsy-fartsy, very weird. Not just the set dressings, but the city folk themselves. Catherine O'Hara's character, Delia Dietz, being an artiste. There are a lot of things in this movie that are pretty ugly, but they're interesting or get used in interesting ways, such as Delia's uh, sculptures that just seem like a little aside at the beginning of the movie, and then all of a sudden they become interesting because of their plot importance. They become sentient beings that basically trap them. That's probably the metaphor for uh, Charles Dietz, how he sees them as just prisons. So if it wasn't for the story working so well and the characters being so engaging, 
Tim Burton style would just not be that fun to look at, which I think is the problem he has in his later movies, like in the 2010s till now, is that he's just the art style without anything else backing it up. Agreed. Yeah, looking at uh, the Alice in Wonderland movies that he made, and they just don't work. <laughs> Danny Elfman, great score, fits this movie perfectly. Some of his stuff takes me out of some movies. I'll just hear certain motifs in the music and say, oh, okay, it's Danny Elfman. And it doesn't quite match whatever action movie it might be in. But this sort of macabre subject matter, it's right up his alley based on some of his performances and some of his music videos, he might already be dead. <laughs> he did all the singing for Jack Skellington, I think, right? Like, Yeah, he did. And that's probably why it fits so well. He's already a skeleton man. <laughs> the ending. Do you think the ending works well, considering how much of the movie is weird? It's just a typical 80s ending of just everything's back to the way it was. That was an adventure, but okay, we're back. When I was watching the ending, they revert the house to some extent. It looks like the gaudy interior decorating that the city folk did got scaled back, I guess as a detente with the Maitlands. I thought for a second that maybe the parents moved back to the city and let <laughs> Lydia live at the house with the ghosts. These ghosts raise you easy. Maybe I'm... Um, a little biased against those type of city folk. <laughs> I think I would have been happier if they weren't there, if they had left the house. <laughs> They're just gone. On a more basic level, part of the villainy in this movie, besides Beetlejuice, you have the city folk moving to Connecticut to get away from the city, and then what does Charles Dietz do Within a few months of living there, he's like, oh, we should buy up all the property around here and turn it into an amusement park. Because he kept saying he's there to relax, and then several scenes that keep showing how he doesn't know how to relax. He's not intentionally evil, but the things he wants to do are going to greatly change the town and is evil, ultimately. Yeah, at the end of the day, he's the evil one. <laughs> it's very corporate. They knew what Beetlejuice was about. Isn't it so crazy that this movie is only PG? That is crazy. There's a lot of dead people in this movie. One of the lawyers in the afterlife got ran over by a bus, and he's just this grotesque flat mess. Oh, yeah, and then there's one guy still hanging from the noose that he killed himself with. Flying around being... Just an office worker. God, so terrible. Delivering mail to people. <laughs> If they do a sequel, something they should do different from the first movie, bump that up from a PG to a PG-13, and just give us a couple more scary moments, like really scary moments, to balance out the comedy a bit. Yeah. That's the only criticism I have about it. It focuses so much on the Maitlands and just kind of being country bumpkins that the real scary moments maybe the two or three in this movie, uh, just like a little bit more so it feels a bit more dangerous because they are dealing with afterlife themes. Like the sandworms. They're just like, oh, they're scary. And then at the end, Gina Davis tames one. We don't get to see why or how. <laughs> she just tames one and somehow it comes in through the house. They really wrap up the ending pretty quickly. They're like, we got to stay under 100 minutes, people. <laughs> We're not getting paid per minute here. we got to cut some stuff. 
if it'll help get the second movie made faster, Hollywood, listen to me now. Let's do a crossover. Let's do Ghostbusters meet Beetlejuice. Ooh, oh, that would be <laughs> phenomenal to see them try and wrangle in Beetlejuice. He could have uh, a whole scene with Slimer and the, the hijinks that could ensue. <laughs> Anytime you describe a portion of a movie as hijinks ensue, you're onto something good. They have a new case, they're investigating Beetlejuice, and then who shows up? Lydia Dietz, as the paranormal expert who's there to help with the case. She lives with ghosts, she has experience with old uh, Beetle guys. It'd be great, folks. Come on, let's do this. Okay, well now I'm going to get into Too Long Didn't Listen. I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions, and I just want very short answers. Which movie do you think is funnier, Death to Smoochie or Beetlejuice? Oh, that's tough. I'm going to give it to Death to Smoochie. Which movie is darker? I think I'm going to give it to Death to Smoochie again. What fate do you think is worse? Being a retired boxer with CTE, being a washed-up children's performer with a heroin addiction, or living with an annoying family in your afterlife? Probably the annoying family with your afterlife, especially since there's an afterlife. So the other two, death will alleviate that, whereas the third one is permanent. Unless they all happen in the same universe, and then you're going to end up with an annoying family regardless. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Between these two movies, what do you think would be a better date movie? Oh, probably Beetlejuice. Between these movies... Which do you think is a better flick to watch with friends? I'd say Beetlejuice. I don't think you have to pay attention to it as much. Oh, yeah, because the the plot is just so involved in uh, Death to Smoochie. (laughs) A lot does happen. If you were to write it all down, what's happening, it would fill a novel. Yeah. I didn't catch myself asking in the middle of the movie, why is uh, Smoochie at a Nazi rally? (laughs) (laughs) It almost doesn't matter. Yeah, it almost doesn't matter. You just want to see the visual of a guy in a rhinoceros costume (laughs) with a swastika flag behind him. (laughs) (laughs) Where's that pink rhino saluting Hitler? Okay, which of these two movies shouldn't you watch if you're really depressed? Ooh. Uh, probably uh, Beetlejuice. It really romanticizes being dead. <laughs> yeah, it does. Which totally feels like a Tim Burton thing. Yeah. But what I love is that in case anybody is really honing in on that aspect of the movie, I do like that Gina Davis at one point tells Winona Ryder's character, death doesn't solve everything. Don't kill yourself. It's almost like she should have turned and looked into the camera when she said that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like she was looking at Tim Burton behind the camera. (laughs) Death isn't cool. (laughs) (laughs) He's just sad back there like, oh, I'm going to go marry Helen Bottom Carter. Are there any questions you want to ask me about these movies, John? If you wanted to impress a girl and you had to show her one of these two, which one would you show her? I would show her Beetlejuice. I think it's the more charming of the two. 
Beetlejuice is what I show a girl in the first couple months of dating, and Death to Smoochie is what I show a year into it when I'm thinking, is this serious? Are we going to go all the way? Oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> if she likes Death to Smoochie, well then, we're very much alike. And between these, you said your favorite is which one? I'm going to go with Beetlejuice. I just, it's been in my life longer. I love Robin Williams, and I miss Robin Williams, but I'm going Beetlejuice. Yeah, I'm going to go Beetlejuice, too. It's got everything I want in my movie. Great character actor performances. Alec Baldwin before he turned into a Hollywood star. Michael Keaton. Winona Ryder. It's an 80s movie. It's quirky. The whole city versus town thing. I like that, too. That speaks to me and my history. Beetlejuice! Don't ignore Death to Smoochie, either. It's worth checking out. On a final note, because I think this would work as a double bill, which movie would you say watch first, and what would you end the night with? I'm going to go with Beetlejuice first, and then end with Death of Smoochie, because that's just what I did when watching these. And it just worked, I think. Although, ending the night on Beetlejuice, I feel like you can go to bed happier. (laughs) 